everyone, and welcome to our fortnightly podcast series. My name's Jan Orford, and I'll once again be your host. Today's session will be on SGLT2 and DPP4 inhibitors. This podcast is the first of three that will be recorded following ADEA webinars that will be broadcast live over June and July. The key purpose of these podcasts will be to provide a brief brief overview of the webinar series and to answer any relevant participant questions that may have been raised during the seminar. I'm delighted to introduce Maxine Schleppi, who presented the webinar series on SGLT2 and DPP4 inhibitors with Dr. Sulin Lau. Maxine's a nurse practitioner CDE who trained at Princess Margaret Children's Hospital in Perth. She has over 28 years of nursing experience and is on various pharmaceutical company expert panels looking at diabetes management. Maxine's also a member of uh, several ADEA committees, including the Credentialing Committee. And Maxine, hello and welcome, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Jan. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today, and hopefully we'll be able to um, discuss just some of the issues that came out of the two webinars that we've held recently. Great, thanks for that. And I guess, as you mentioned, there's probably quite a lot to cover. So perhaps if we can get straight into it, if that's all right with you. And I'd like to ask you to briefly outline the key points that were covered in the two-part webinar series on the SGLT2 and DPP4 inhibitors, if you could, please. Thanks, Jan. Um, before we start that, I'll just mention that um, the slides and the recording of the webinars themselves can be actually accessed on the ADA LMS portal. So if we go straight into the SGLT2 inhibitors, the mode of action is to decrease renal glucose absorption, increases urinary loss, slight weight loss, and of course, a slight improvement in blood pressure. Some of the key benefits are a HbA1c reduction, but of course this depends totally on the starting HbA1c um, of each um, patient. It also reduces both fasting and postprandial blood glucose levels. It is effective independent of insulin production itself and affects and is effective actually at any stage of renal um, of diabetes itself. Some of the side, key side effects, it lowers blood uh, fasting and postprandial blood glucose levels. It is a very low risk of hypoglycemia, but there is a relatively low risk also of euglycemic DKA. And some of the counter-regulatory indications for an SGLT2 inhibitor are in paediatrics, although there are some studies that are also being held um, shortly, yeah, certainly in America. Also with type 1 diabetes, although it is used in America, it is not um, regulated in Australia for use in type 1 diabetes. It's not used in pregnancy due to the category C um, effect of these medications and the transfer um, across the placenta. Also, it shouldn't be used in severe patients with severe liver disease 
um, and it has a limitation of usage in renal failure, but this is due to the efficacy, um, a lack of efficacy of this medication uh, in renal failure itself. The DPP-4 inhibitors, some of the mode of action, once again, it inhibits the enzyme responsible for the breakdown of GLP-1. It decreases GLP-1 clearance and increases GLP-1 concentration. The key benefits, of course, are HBA reduction, once again, depending on the starting HBA1C levels. It reduces both fasting and postprandial um, blood glucose levels. Some of the key side effects, the most common ones are nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infections, headaches. Although hypoglycemia is rare, it is still possible, especially when it's added to either sulfonylureas or insulin. Also, pancreatitis is a, a, a less common or rarer effect, and there is a slight risk for arthralgia. Some of the counterindications are once again for type 1 diabetes, paediatrics, pregnancy, and we need to actually be very careful when prescribing uh, and usage in the elderly. Thanks for that nice summary, Maxine. I just One of the questions which seems to pop up is which of the two classes of drugs has the biggest effect on lowering HbA1c? I wonder if you could comment on that for us. Okay, Jan. What um, the literature is actually telling us is that realistically they are both the same so we're getting about a 0.5 to 1% reduction uh, certainly with the DPP4 inhibitors. The SGLT2 inhibitors sometimes we do gain a little bit more uh, than that 1% reduction but realistically they are both very much the same and very dependent on what the starting HbA1c for our patients are. So I, I guess following on from that, the other question that comes to mind is how quickly do these classes of drugs begin to actually work? So when we're looking at the DPP-4 inhibitors, they're actually um, absorbed very rapidly um, upon intake um, and they reach their steady state in about two to five days. Whereas the SGLT2 inhibitors, they are rapidly absorbed on oral administration and they take uh, up to about six days to reach steady state. And so just coming back to the SGLT2 inhibitors, do the side effects of increased thirst and polyuria diminish at all with time? So as these medications are still relatively new, there is no clinical evidence um, that actually they diminish over time. But anecdotally, uh, a lot of our patients do state that this does settle a little bit, um, depending on what their, um, their effects are. We do have to remember that they have a diuretic effect um, and that if patients are taking the correct amount of fluids per day um, to prevent the ketoacidosis, they will always have a slight diuretic effect. Thanks for that, Maxine. I guess the other obvious question is, when's the best time to take this class of medication, before or after meals? Okay, so the DPP-4s, it is usually before meals because what we're looking for, of course, is the effect postprandially. So we're trying to, to help cover 
um, a meal um, glucose rise with those DPP-4s. Whereas the SGLT2s, when we're thinking about the fact that they have a diuretic effect, it would be more sensible for those to be taken in the morning so that, in fact, people can have um, a less urination overnight, um, which causes less or a lack of sleep. That sounds good to me. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, Maxine, uh, if a client's having surgery or a procedure of any kind, do the SGLT2 inhibitors need to be withheld at all? If so, for how long? And when should they be reintroduced to avoid the risk of DKA? So there are recent international and national guidelines that have just been brought out. Uh, and these state that, in fact, we need to cease an SGLT2 inhibitor for three days, for example, two days prior to surgery, the day of surgery. So when we're talking about that, avoiding the risk of DKA, we would want, not want to reinstate that until the patient is taking an adequate fluid intake. Okay, so we've covered a bit of information in this uh, podcast today, and I just wonder if you could perhaps provide us with three take-home messages on, on the webinar overall. So, Jan, I think my three key messages probably come from a diabetes ed educator's perspective uh, and not from a pharmaceutical company perspective. Uh, the first one, of course, remembering always to individualise treatment choices. For example, we need to be discussing all changes with patients prior to any change being made. We should secondly take into account all aspects of a person's lifestyle including their economics and perhaps think about the use of polypharmacy if possible. Um, this would prevent some of the stress on patients. And then, of course, if we use thirdly a multidisciplinary approach to any person's treatment, um, we would then be taking into account the, the perhaps the increase in adherence to any change that a patient may have. Uh, and, of course, talking to all members of their team um, gives the same message. So thank you, Maxine, so much for your time today. It's been really great getting an update on these two classes of medicines, particularly as we've had so many new ones come on to, into the marketplace over the last couple of years or so. I'd also like to remind listeners that this webinar series can be accessed through the LMS, as um, Maxine alluded to earlier. The webinar slides and references are also available. So even if you don't register to do the webinar, although I'd urge you to do so, I also urge you to look at these as they provide a really great overview of the two classes of medicine. By listening to this podcast and the following two podcasts on continuous glucose monitoring and simplifying insulin intensification, you can earn one CPD point under the clinical category. Finally, remember you do need to complete the evaluation on, on these uh, podcasts before you can get your certificate for them. I'd also like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And in the next fortnight, we will commence our series on carbohydrate counting methods. So see you then and goodbye for now.